usually people have somewhat of a bit of music or a jingle of some sort. Um, but if you're like me, more than anything, I hate the fucking jingle that starts a podcast. Actually, only only thing worse than that is seven minutes of ads at the start of a podcast. That's that's second to none. I much prefer it when people just get into it, so that's exactly what I'm going to do here. Um, need to stop saying M, but <laughs> with episode five of the podcast, I interviewed my good friend Steeps. Uh, I will go into his introduction within the podcast, but we talked about a lot of things. It ranged from investment banking to mortgages to our propensity for risk to car crashes at race circuits to Patrick Bateman to all sorts of other shit and it was a really interesting conversation and one of the things that I noticed is that there's a lot of things I found out about a good friend of mine that I wouldn't have in a casual public conversation it was only through this somewhat formal structure that I was able to find out these really interesting things about a good friend of mine so yeah an interesting one Um, I won't speak any any longer but what I will do is we'll jump into the pod here we go this is the the start to episode five of the podcast um this episode I have my good friend Steeps or Matthew Steeples what would you prefer to be known as what would your international name be um either or people know me in work with Matthew but uh to my friends I'm Steeps they know you Matt, so Steeps hasn't transferred to the, the work location yet? Well, one of them mentioned a nickname, and they said, oh, do you get called Steeps? And I was like, that's interesting, you come up with that all by yourself. So, it's making its way, but <laughs> I really think it'd be uh, it'll be interesting to jump on a call with some senior management and be called Steeps. So, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see that, just you 20 years down the line, like... Steeps has joined the call and you're just heading up some investment <laughs> bank, some hedge fund. <laughs> Steeps is your manager for today. I'd love to see that, mate. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, anyways, um, Steeps, you're a good friend from back home. We met through our mutual friend, Ross Stephen, uh, around university age. Um, you are probably one of the most financially responsible individuals I'm aware of. I swear you could have taught me about mortgages and how to set up my portfolio at 18 years old. Um, and I think that's probably what I see as like your greatest knowledge base in my head. Like if I think of Matthew Steeples, I think very smart man with money. And then I think about all the other interesting things around that. So that's your that's your introduction, Steeps. Would you like to say anything to to join the pod today? Firstly, hello to all, all your listeners. Uh, <laughs> it's fun being on this side rather than listening because I've listened to the podcast leading up, so I could get a feel for it. Um, I'd say I'm, I'm yeah. flattered. What was your thoughts? Uh, I like it. I like the whole premise, and uh, I'm excited to contribute towards it. Unreal. So we talked about this before, but the way we started uh, the podcast in the past have been talking about how we have our coffee in the morning on the usual and how we've had it today so 
give me a wee insight into your coffee this morning and actually tell tell the viewers what time it is there and what time you were up at this morning to even join the pod. Sure. So currently it's five past seven. Uh, I was up at six, but that's not strictly true because I went back to bed. So I got off about twenty past half past six and started thinking about my coffee for this morning, which was just a black coffee. But it's from Grain and Grind in Glasgow. And I've got the bag in front of me so I could give you all the details. It's part Tell of the Halloween me. range. It's called the Ghostly Guatemalan. And it apparently has notes of orange, tangerine, plum and dark chocolate. And it was roasted on the 24th of October. Tell me, can you see when you're having a coffee like that and you see the tasting notes in front of you? Do you ever try and sit there and try like identify them for your, for yourself, or is that just like a, a novelty thing for you? I try my best. Sometimes it fails miserably, but I try my best. It's uh, it's similar to whiskey that way, where you can try your best to try to pick out the notes, and you only get better with reading the notes and trying to pick it out and where you pick out on your tongue. But mm. sometimes, if you're just having a drink, it's just coffee, you know. Yeah, I feel you. And the thing about taste notes, so I've worked in the specialist coffee industry for a while, so I've got an insight into the back end of this. Um, and tasting notes are just usually one or two people's tasting of the coffee and then their imagination. So mm-hmm. it's just one dude that's roasted this coffee and thought, mm, what does that taste like? And that's your tasting notes. So they're not entire, it's not like some super scientific process that produced these. And I don't know what I thought prior to my experience within the industry, like how they came up with it, but I thought it would be something that's a bit more structured. But no, it's just some dude that's like, oh, yeah, it tastes like orange peel and black orange juice and candied caramel or something like that. I don't know, is it just me that thought that, or did you think that it was just some dude as well? I guess I kind of thought there would be, I don't know, I didn't think they were like adding orange peel, tangerine, plum and dark chocolate to a big vat of, of grounds. But I suppose I thought there'd be a kind of scientific, oh, we'll add this and it'll, it'll give it that orange taste and that kind of thing. But I suppose that is true. It's, it's down to personal opinion. And some people, coffee is just coffee, you know? Yeah, I mean, conversation with my brother last week. Uh, I'm sure you listened to it, actually. He is very much an instant coffee man. Like, he yeah. does not give one... <laughs> one care in the world for it he's just like as long as it wakes me up that's all that matters so um i don't know do you think it's a certain personality type that gets really weird about coffee because we we are now at this stage where we're somewhat a little bit pretentious about it we're a, a bit particular we enjoy what we enjoy we're intrigued and learning more and being interested in it so do you think it's a certain personality type that's attracted to like developing their palate within that or looking further into like the the subsets of coffees or um, is it just completely at random? I think it's a bit of both. For me, I like the routine of coffee. Like, you wake up in the morning and you get the machine warmed up, you measure out your... I don't really measure out, I use a, a spoon that came with the machine, put it in the basket, mix the basket about with the needles, tamp it down and there's a, a sort of nice morning ritual to it and it helps get mm. me in the mindset for the day and then it helps to produces, in my opinion, a better coffee than if I'd gone into work. When I do go into work, 
and I'm in the office early doors, I'll get a coffee from there and they have, they call it a Starbucks, but it's basically the same machining grounds that the Starbucks use. And it's not very good coffee, so I can see the difference in coffee and there's a real quality jump. But then it's one of these diminishing returns where you can spend so much on coffee to a point where it is just diminishing returns that if you showed the, the lay person, they wouldn't be able to tell you the difference. So it is very personal. And I think some people do get far more into it, like yourself, starting a business out of it, than the person on the street. But then the person on the street is very happy to, to try out new things and try new coffees on the basis that to them, it's coffee. Yeah. I think, yeah, you're exactly right. Most people won't notice the difference at all. They're just not bothered about it. Um, I wonder if there's any be- been done, like, some proper research on uh, the personality types. Because in my mind, the people most into the niche specialist coffee industry is usually young men. Like, I picture a 20 to 30-year-old man They've usually got somewhat of a beard, which isn't me because I can't grow facial hair. Um, I imagine them with spectacles of some sort and maybe a beanie. Like that's the that's the archetype of specialist coffee in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think of like a a fifty year old woman, um, but maybe it's just because specialist coffee, especially in as in Glasgow, is a thing of the past five or ten years. I don't know if it was specialist coffee a thing before that. I mean, for me personally, specialist coffee was kind of reserved for that sort of pretentious elite small, small group. But I think Mm. with, I suppose this is the same story for a lot of stuff with social media exploding in the way like TikTok has as well, where suddenly everything's accessible in a minute to three minutes and people going through their coffee routines and taking questions in a pretty open way. It's opened up to a lot of people. Mm. Um, the demographics would be really interesting to see, but I have no idea. Apart from anecdotal, being to the grain and grind on, uh, in Kevin Grove and seeing there's a very wide range of people there. So I think the adoption of coffee through specialists is getting better, but the specialists themselves are probably still fall widely into that with some, some outliers. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that um, just going back to the one of the first things you just said there, that social media and seeing people having their own coffee routine has impacted uh, the industry in a, a positive way uh, because people can see how they do it. And I think that's probably mm-hmm. a good thing because coffee in particular is one of those industries that is pretty or has been pretty gatekeepy in the past. Um, people were like very secretive about how they make coffee and like, even nowadays, like a lot of roasters are very secretive about what beans they use and stuff. Um, so it's good that social media is impacting, impacting us in that way. Um, but uh, I don't have a relevant segue uh, into this next section, Steve, so I'm not going to lie oh, to you, straight, mate. Straight so, to it, straight to it. <laughs> so upon looking at your LinkedIn profile, it oh, says that go. you are a financial analyst. So, my question to you, mate, whose finances are you analysing and why? It's a good question. Um, so, I work for a large bank holding company uh, in Glasgow, International Footprint, and 
when they take the title of finance analyst, it's incredibly wide. So it basically is meant to be a catch-all term that covers the whole of the finance department and your analyst level. So you go analyst to associate to director, VP, executive director, managing director. So break it down, you're an analyst, level one in the finance department. And you get analysts in operations and analysts in tech. So that's how you break it down. What I do on a day-to-day basis, I'm actually a business analyst. So that's uh, a term that's specific to projects and agile environments. So my team essentially sits in the middle between technology developers and finance stakeholders and helps develop pieces of software and reporting tools for finance. So say for instance, a new regulation comes in. So you remember from uni, Basel III, the, the love of our lives back then, that came in and we had to, or the firm would rather have to change the reporting to account for that because it's simple to say, yeah, your weighting of certain assets has changed. And you say, great, on paper or on an Excel sheet, 15 to 20%, there's your number. But when you're reporting that as a team daily, you don't just do that. You have to put it through the, we call them calculation engines, which take all the firm's data, calculate the numbers appropriately, distribute it to the teams that need it. The teams that need it then have their own specialised tools that take that enriched data, put it through, do their own reporting on it, output it to whoever needs to see it. So there's a lot of back-end changes that happen when regulators change things and our team helps deliver those changes from regulation into reality with the firm. And how how big is your team that's working on these and what sort of regulators are you working with? Is this people like the Financial Conduct Authority or is it other kind of government bodies? Who is it exactly? Or is that something you can reveal or is that something that's entirely confidential? There's certainly some stuff that's confidential, but I'll be open and tell you it's confidential. It's not confidential for me to not tell you. Um, yeah. Basically, my team individually is broken into squads. And in my squad, we've got about five or so uh, business analysts. And then we've got six or so developers. And then the stakeholders, you know, how long is a piece of string? There's people always coming to you asking for something. Mm. that's my squad you then have multiple squads that make up what's called a fleet and you could have as many squads as you like so for us it's difficult to say but there's probably about five to six squads with roughly same numbers as us but the fleet is the high level this is what we want to do over the course of a year and they break it down to each squad has its own objective and its own very specialised task so by breaking it down to squads and tasks each squad can accomplish their task which then feeds up into the objective for the overall fleet okay i got you it's very um militaristic uh squads why do you say that it is the terminology in reality we're just excel punching numbers in and having chats it's uh (laughs) I don't really know who came up with it, uh, but they must have been pretty pleased with themselves or watched too many movies. 
<laughs> I quite like it. It's just it's very it's very tech bro financey the the squads oh, yeah. and fleets um, terminology for it. Um, with this right, so you you talked about punching numbers into Excel sheets. How hmm. much of the your role is automated through these algorithms, and how much is still relying on that like face to face interaction? So my role specifically is very reliant on person-to-person interaction. In my previous role, um, I was the person reporting and a lot of it came through these automated pieces of software that you would download certain reports from and then add your own commentary based on it. So I used to be in a team that would look at the liquidity of the firm, uh, specifically uh, it's what's called an NSFR ratio which is the net stable funding requirement. And it's basically how much liquid or how much certain types of assets you have to hold based on how many illiquid assets you have. And that was brought in post-2008 to to try and stop banks going belly up. With that, I took mm. reports out of these pieces of software, added commentary to them and sent them off to senior management who needed to see them. And that role I didn't really have much in face-to-face interaction because I was at the very bottom doing the reports in this role I have meetings with our tech guys every day apart from Fridays because you do what's called a stand-up in Agile where they tell you what they're working on if there's any blockers so if they can't do something the reason for blockers and tell you what they're going to work on then and the whole point as a BA is you can take those blockers and say okay from my end how can I unblock this is there someone that I know in my network that can help you with that or can I connect two developers that have areas of expertise to help each other so in the current role I've got meetings every day and that's the way I like it I prefer being able to talk to people it's it's nice to be social you know So, so you described a past role and now this different role. How long yep. has it you been working with the company for? Including my internship, it was so far about a year and a half. You do a year in the grad role in one team, which is my previous team. And I've been in this current team for about two months. So I'm very much learning the ropes in this, this current role because it's wildly different. But okay. you know, every day is a learning day. And is this something, is it one of those roles where you do three months in one department, three months in another department, three months in another, or is it you do this role for a certain amount of years and then you move up that previously mentioned hierarchy that you were talking about um, just five minutes ago? Spot on. So I have completed my only rotation and then I'll stay in this team. It's my kind of forever home unless I choose to, to move. And then, yeah, just move up to the hierarchy and hope I get promoted. Okay. And is that is that the goal? What's the what's the mission here? Is it um you're in it for the long term, try to work up that hierarchy? Or is it taking the learnings from this and applying it to a project of your own? Well I know I'll definitely be in this business for at least four or five years because I'm currently doing an accountancy qualification, which is part of the the sort of terms and conditions of getting the job you have to go through this qualification which is 13 exams I was exempt from one I've done two 
So I'm currently studying towards corporate and business law, which I'll sit in March. So I estimate I'll be done in four-ish years, five if I want to take it at my own pace. And by that point, I'll have worked and gained quite a bit of knowledge. If you're to ask where kind of I see myself in my perfect head, I would love to be in motorsport in some capacity. Um, Ooh, quite often. Interesting. Tell to, me more. Yeah. Quite often I've gone into LinkedIn and looked on F1 pages and looked to see who their, their finance director is and thought, hmm, I wonder if one day I can be the finance director. I just I just love motorsport in any capacity. If you stick an engine and some wheels on it, you're bound to get some <laughs> amount of fun. Um, it's, it's just been a kind of natural progression. And for last Christmas, I was lucky enough to get a season ticket to Knock Hill which is uh, oh, the racing circuit yeah. up just north of Edinburgh. Mm. And they have an amazing calendar every year with stuff like the, the touring cars, which tour the country. Um, this year they had caterums, which, if your listeners don't know, are awesome. They are so cool. They're really low-slung, um, a lot of power, not much weight, so they go flying and really good racing. But they do stuff like that and rallying uh, around the circuit. So I love to go up and watch it and I take my camera up and incorporate my passion for photography into motorsport through automotive photography. And that's where I'd love in my ideal world to earn all the money I need to earn to be comfortable in life and happy, but working in motorsport, being as close to the, the action in these cars as I can be. That's unreal. I never knew that that was uh, such a passion of yours and you've actually answered one of my questions that I was going to delve into, um, which is what you're passionate about. Um, mm. Me and uh, my brother and my dad used to go up to Knock Hill when we were younger um, yeah. and watch, watch the races all the time. I've got pictures of me like touching a Ferrari's when I was six years old with a Brilliant. little red hat on. Like, <laughs> Brilliant. That's a, that's a nostalgic memory for me. Um, I'm assuming you've got a bit more of an appreciation for cars than I do. Um, you're probably somewhat similar to my brother. He's obsessed that he was always reading the, the Top Gear magazines. But any time I was up there, I was just hoping for a crash. That I mean, that was that was my entertainment for Knock Hill. It was like, will we see a crash? Is it a good day? Those were two congruent questions. Um, but I'm assuming you're actually there for the racing more so than the crashing. I mean, in, in all honesty, I'm there for the motorsport. Like, whatever happens, great. I, I have to agree, it's kind yeah. of morbid, but when there's a crash, there's certainly a bit of excitement, <laughs> you know. I mean, um, we've got to be honest for ourselves. Like, yeah, we are, we're it's humans. It's exciting, you see a crash. That, that's part like, of oh it. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, the best crash I've seen at Knock Hill, I say the best, everyone walked away absolutely fine. Uh, the only thing that didn't mm. walk away fine was the guy's bank account because it was a Porsche Carrera uh, that he crashed oh. because it was on the touring cars and they all line up and there's about 20 Porsches on the grid and everyone got a good start apart from this one guy in the middle of the grid who stalled and the problem is when you see the video clip all these Porsches are racing away and some of them are getting out of the way of them until you see the back markers sort of 19, 20 who are at that point they're probably about 100 miles an hour and all of a sudden a space opens up and there's a, a Porsche sat there not moving and they've got about 100 miles oh, an hour God. bang straight to the back of them. And that then takes out like three or four others. And these cars cost Jesus. like 120 to 150 grand. 
just these are start. personal cars that these are their personal vehicles so in this one it was a series so they buy it themselves but they have lots of sponsors but mm. with motorsport it really is up to financing and how many sponsors can you get so there's an example of a uh, a racer called hannah chapman who we'd watched last season had quite a nasty crash in her mini and mm. it was a crash to the degree that she actually had to put out requests for extra sponsorship and put out extra packages because the mini mm. needed rebuilt so at that level motorsport it really is a race by race basis so when you see a crash you know for a fact that, that was a big crash but what happens after that is really interesting it's all part of the stories in motorsport which just make it so exciting yeah this is something that i never i never knew about at all um and so i guess one of the biggest things that brought people into like being interested i mean you're probably further back than this but the drive to survive on netflix i think oh yeah come on people people before that weren't remotely interested in f1 and then that series come out and like 90 percent of your mates are now f1 fans oh definitely i loved it for that because people that never would have spoken about f1 suddenly are want to chat about f1 which is great it's uh, mm. it's an interesting one because there is some controversy around it about the the audio clips they use so using clips from certain races over other races to increase the drama of it but that's just the nature of the beast uh, when you get okay when you get sort of a, a large a large presence in f1 people are wanting to watch entertainment and drama so they get given entertainment and drama so there is a it's a great thing because you get to see access to drivers and teams that you never would have got before ever but you just have to sort of temper it with thinking there's a wee bit, wee bit of artistic license there Okay, that's that's something I found really interesting. I only ended up watching two episodes of this, but I remember watching it and thinking, like, there's no way that it's this dramatic all the time. Like, the the drivers were so bratty and there was these personal beefs going on, and mm-hmm. almost as if it was as if it was a cartoon or something. Like, I just I couldn't picture that as reality. I was like, there's so much money in this. This is a worldwide sport that people watch, but these people are behaving as if they're in some sort of like BBC drama. I just couldn't believe it. Um, do you think that actual motorsports, say for example, you were to go in as a financial manager of like one of the teams and one of the companies that the people you worked with would actually be like that? Or do you think it would be a lot less dramatic and more normal than it's portrayed on TV? I think in the finance department it would be pretty pretty chilled out, um, mm. unless you're Red Bull. I don't know if you've seen the the controversies of them and their cost cap, so they went over the cost no. cap, which was big controversy because they introduced basically similar to football's financial fair play, where you can only spend a certain amount in a year, and Red Bull went over that by I think it was about between half a million to a million, but it was on things that weren't development so there's big controversies and they got fined for it and all that so if you went into the Red Bull finance department it's probably pretty dramatic just now but in yeah. reality it would be kind of just a day to day job with the, the motorsport coming through because that's what you're working on it's interesting mm. you say because there's definitely beefs <laughs> in F1 like there's, but there's beefs within it oh yeah like if you look at the drivers yeah they can be quite bratty on drive to survive but that doesn't come from nowhere 
They, uh, if you look mm. at like Hamilton and Verstappen last year, that was, that was a tense season. <laughs> you know, um, they were at each other's throats on equal points going into the last race. Both had been in crashes with each other the whole season. If you look at Hamilton and Nico Rosberg, I think it was in twenty sixteen, they were again at each other's throats to the point where Nico Rosberg beat Hamilton, won the championship, and then retired. Because he had to basically take the whole time away from his family and his life and put all his energy into this one season. And afterwards, he was like, nah, done, retiring, I'm going to be a pundit. And then Hamilton went on to win everything else. Uh, unreal. Who was, who was the guy that retired? What age was he? Nico Rosberg. Um, I couldn't tell you the age, but I just know it was a, an intense season. Okay. Do you, so would you be coming from a finance department of one of these major firms, do you think you would be the level cool head coming into this wild, wild west of motorsports? Or how much would you get involved in that chaos as well? I think it would definitely help having come from the sort of financial services banking background because you would be coming into an industry with a lot of really strict controls. Uh, given mm. the, the new cost cap that's been introduced, every penny has to be accounted for. So coming from that kind of detail-oriented background would definitely be a benefit. I do think there would be a degree of separation because ultimately it's the finance department of this very exciting thing. So it's not as if you're sitting at your desk balancing the books and you've got an F1 car screaming past you, you know, they'll be off racing in Bahrain or uh, Monaco and you'd be back in, I think most of them are based out of Milton Keynes, in the office working mm. away. It's mostly, I would want to be involved with it because it's as close as I could get in my current capacity. Like, I'm not going to be an F1 driver. I would love to be, but I don't have the, the uh, I would need to go back in time, basically, and acquire lots of money and get into go-karts. So the closest I can get to it is through my career and hoping that finance mm. kind of takes me on that path. But who knows, maybe in a year I could sit back and say, do you know what, I'm happy just to see it on the big screen or maybe hopefully one day in person. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting that you've thought of your career as progressing um, in that manner towards it. Uh, mm. I think most people get kind of pigeonholed into a certain career and can't see it applying to different situations. As mm. that that kind of plan of applying or using your current finance route and um, possibly in the future for F1, is that something that you've only realised recently or has that been part of the, the master plan of Steeps? It's been always in the back of my head. It's mm. something that, I've considered for a while, but never given serious thought to because I can't really give it serious thought. I'm not in a position to say, right, tomorrow I'm going to apply for a job and hopefully work for an F1 team. It's something that is in the future as a very sort of loose goal because I think it is really important to have long-term goals. And you have to ask yourself, okay, in sort of 10 years, where would I love to be? And some people say, oh, I have no idea. But you say, no, no, what, what would you actually love to be doing in 10 years? And if you would love to be doing the same thing in 10 years, cool, great. Have that in your head 
and think, what do I need to do to make sure I can stay doing what I'm doing? Yeah, you've got to have your long-term goal because if you've got a long-term goal, you should start now. At this point, we ran into a multitude of technical difficulties. The connection dropped, Steepsy's headphones nearly ran out of charge and a whole bunch of other shit. But we managed to get online and luckily I've cut out absolutely all of the nonsense, uh, which takes about four minutes. So we'll just jump right back in from the second half of the podcast. Here we go. Boom. Okay, so we're back from a short break. We had some uh, connection issues and your man... Some technical difficulties. Your man Steeps here has 20% left in his headphones. Um, so it's looking like the second half of this podcast is going to be some quick fire questions. Um, I think the first half of our conversation, the way we were going, we could probably um, do a two and a half hour pod. And I think that's something that we'll have to do uh, sometime in the future. Um, hopefully in person would be fucking great. And we could sit down and go out, get buzzed deep into all these conversations. But um, I've actually I've I've noted down some questions that I wanted to ask you, and they're related to you and your career, but they're out of left field. Um, kind of like you've seen hot ones before, haven't you? Right, we're gonna get a bit weird with the questions. Um, my first first one being. Um, you obviously work in finance and that attracts a, a certain personality. Uh, I know you personally, you're a lovely person, you're a great man, but is there any Patrick Batemans in the office? Is there any fucking sociopaths that you're like, I'll maybe fucking curve left at that cunt? You won't find them in our office. Um, the kind of person you're describing wouldn't be attracted to our line of work. So we're sort of support functions. We're what's known as a cost a cost centre. So we don't make any profit for the firm. Your Patrick Bateman type mm. person that you you're sort of thinking about is your your traders. Um but to preface that, there are plenty of people that seek out trading and mergers and acquisitions and these really high high pressure, high publicity, high compensation roles that have a really healthy balance in their personality but I know for a fact Patrick Bateman was in mergers and acquisitions he's a that's what his role was in the nameless finance firm he worked for so that's the kind of the New York style client facing the deal gets done kind of mentality and the person that finds themselves associated with that okay so mergers and acquisitions people dealing with money that could potentially give them massive financial gain. Mm -hmm. That's where you're most likely to find one. Have you ever you ever ran into a sociopath yourself? You ever had a conversation with someone and you can just see the cogs turning in their brain as they're conversating with you? You can just feel them slightly trying to manipulate you in a certain way. I don't think I've ever ran into a sociopath in real life. Although I suppose part of being a sociopath or psychopath is the kind of ability to mask. So I try and see the best in people. So I don't know if I would actually have picked up on that. Maybe I'm just a, in the wild, I'd be that 
doe-eyed antelope that's like, oh, he's my friend. And then <laughs> I've been murdered by a crocodile. <laughs> so who knows? I might be working with some and I just have no idea. But I don't think so, no. I think that might... I think that might be the case, mate. You're a you're a very highly intelligent individual, mate. But I honestly, I think that a, not not a large percentage, maybe like three or four percent of the population have sociopathic tendencies. Mm-hmm. At least there's been conversations that I've had with people. Um, you, do you ever get that feeling of intuition where you just don't quite like someone and you can't put your finger on why? Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's just gut feel. You just got to stay away. Yeah, that's got a few. I get, I get, I get that weird feeling around some people, and you can see. For me, it's always in the eyes. Mm-hmm. For the people that I can kind of like identify as sociopathic, they've always got this fucking little calculating look in their eyes, as if their eyes aren't really their eyes. They've got some sort of contact lens on, and they're looking through mm-hmm. this kind of like a wee control room behind the brain. Um. But yeah, that's my question was: Is there any Patrick Batemans you work with? And you've said no, not in your department, and um, because it's not for financial gain. So most likely to find a Patrick game, Patrick Bateman would be in financial or like power gains in some way, right? Yes, and the reason I'm saying that is because that's where Patrick Bateman was in the book and in the film, and from what I've read, that's where I've sort of those types of characters, sociopaths, psychopaths, are attracted to. And there are a lot of uh, mm. articles about certain doctors being psychopaths because they have a very good detachment at what's on the table in front of me is a task needing to be done, not someone's mum, not someone's dad. They're able to detach the emotion from it. So it's interesting because a little segue on my own about the sort of stigma associated with psychopaths. It's really interesting because everyone says, oh, psychopath, serial killer, you know, very negative stigmas. But in reality, a lot of society relies on psychopaths in the capacity of, you know, certainly the medical profession. You want someone that's able to have that detachment and do exactly the job they need to do and not burst into tears at the table. And it's definitely the case of some CEOs that are able to run a company because they don't have the emotional detachment. So it's interesting. It's certainly interesting. At the end of the day, these psychopaths are still people. So there's a real interesting societal stigma surrounding it. Yeah, I never really thought of it in that way before. But I guess if if psychopaths aren't running around murdering people and intentionally harming mm-hmm. them, and they're just that that's the way their brain works and it actually provides a a benefit to society, then who are we to judge? And I think the thing is with like anything like this, most anyone who's born a psychopath doesn't isn't born wanting to be a psychopath. Their brain just works in that way. Oh, definitely. Um, so you're right. As I think you need to look at it from the utilitarian perspective. Like, what is the the net outcome? That's how I look at most things. Like, it doesn't for me. It doesn't really matter the intention. It's more so like the outcome, the result. Mm-hmm. And if they are a psychopath, if they want to do or they think of things in a really negative way or slightly evil way, but they have a net positive impact, then I'm not really caring, to be honest. If if it's all good, it's all good. I mean, that's it. Like, if you're born a psychopath, it's not as if you wake up one day and choose to be a psychopath. It's literally the way your brain's wired. Um, and there are plenty of careers yeah. and places in society for someone whose brain is wired that way. 
to fit in, you know, in the areas that need that kind of emotional detachment to produce the best outcome. So it's interesting. I'm definitely not an expert on the topic. Uh, I think, who is it, John Ronson, the psychopath test? He's an expert on it, and his stuff's really interesting to watch and listen to. He's done plenty of TED Talks on it. John Ronson, I'll need to, John I'll need Ronson, to give, that, um, give that a look. It's a pretty famous, John Ronson. Yeah, pretty famous book, The Psychopath Test. Okay. Okay, I'll give it a look. Um, on the subject, not really of psychopaths, that's a terrible segue once again, um, but it was a question. <laughs> I'm going to need to get better at my segues, honestly. Um, I was reading something. Do you know what? To, to do a segue, I'm going to tell you about segues. I like it. Um, so I'm <laughs> reading this book uh, called Originals right, right now uh, by Adam Grant. And they talk about the segue. And if you remember, we were very young when the segue was kind of like in TV shows and movies and pop mm-hmm. culture. Um, and it was basically this guy who had made multiple really successful inventions within the medical industry. And he thought of and designed and started producing the segue. And his idea for it was like a new way for human transportation within mm-hmm. cities. And he captured the attention of some of, like, the biggest minds. So Steve Jobs was a personal investor and believed it was going to change the way we travel within cities. And it was the same as the guy... Who's the the fucking weirdo that does the computer um, security software? What's his name? Uh, He's mega famous. He has, like, private islands and stuff. That's the man. So... Him, Steve Jobs, a few, I think Bill Gates as well, they were all personally invested because it was this amazing investor. Um, and then the segue just like never, like you'll notice in the early 2000s, it's in TV shows and movies and songs and pop culture because it was this massive push mm-hmm. from these mega famous entrepreneurs and it just never, never took. Basically, mm-hmm. people were like, nah, I'm not fucking jumping on a segue to go to work, fuck off. Um, anyways, that's my, that's my segue story. Um, that uses a segue to segue to my next question, which is, um, I asked my flatmates, uh, so I'm living in Melbourne just mm-hmm. now, and I'm living with three uh, Aussie girls in a, a flat or a house share in a place called Richmond, and I asked them, what would they like to know from someone who works in the finance industry? And one of the questions they had is, to what degree does schooling matter for employment? within the industry and what she meant by that is what's the ratio of people who went to public schools and private schools that are then uh, within that finance industry is that something is there any correlation in there at all or is that just um, an assumption that that people would think that people in private schools are more likely to go into finance than people from public schools off the top of my head I don't know the ratio of private school to public school employees. Um, it would be interesting. These are all questions I would love to know the answer to as well. What I can say, though, is the recruitment is very open to everyone. So in reality, I'm actually, fun enough today, I'm doing assessment centres for the incoming graduates. So I'm involved directly with the recruitment. And you don't get their CV, um, unless it's for a very specific role 
But generally, when someone applies to the intake, you don't get the CV, um, you don't get the university, you don't get their school. All you get is them and the questions that you've been given, which are typically strength-based. And you just ask them the questions. Tell me a time when you had to overcome adversity. Tell me a time when a project or a task didn't go according to plan and how did you fix that? Those are the kind of questions and you write down your notes and the questions or the answers they give you and then they go on to the next interview and from these incremental interviews you build a picture of the person rather than their education. And sure the education might come into it if you ask them directly but you're not allowed to. Um, and that's to stop any kind of discrimination of oh they went to the same school as me I'll hire them or they came from the same area as me I'll hire them they they try very hard to remove as much of that before they apply to the firm as they can so mm. it would be interesting to see even with all that filtering who gets through so from from your side from the the institution perspective you cannot discriminate in any which fashion but I'm wondering just like in general even without any discrimination at all are people from private school backgrounds more likely to go into that industry than people from public school? Maybe it's it's entirely down to I suppose the way that person took their education. So for me, I was always interested in finance. I know that to my dad, you know, I grew up with tax at the table, you know, everything was, he was able to answer all my questions. School, not so much answering the finance questions. It definitely gave me a really good platform to go on from. But in reality, I would say it actually matters more for university. So the uni we went to, was heavily poached by Strath or heavily poached by uh, the firm. They would come in, and I think you remember mm. they'd come in, and you know, one in every three lectures there would be someone there, before saying, "Oh, apply to the program," and that's where a lot of people come through. And you see that in the how did you hear about us section, and it's mostly through, oh well, you you were at my uni, so I thought I'd just apply. So I think it matters more mm. from university level because, in reality the school you go to it's just the start of your education it's what you kind of do after that and you don't even need to do related degrees you could be doing a philosophy degree and as long as you're the right fit for it you can get hired because ultimately they try and hire on emotional intelligence because you can be trained on everything you know it's it's not difficult to train so someone emotional intelligence is that's the utmost priority for them in a lot of the cases they want to know are you going to be the kind of person that you can work in a team? Um, specifically in our location, because, yeah, you could be an absolute rock star at your job, but if you're going to actually bring the team down and you're not a good fit for the firm in terms of culture and the core values, they don't want to hire you because they can just as easily hire someone that is a good fit for the culture and the actual mission the firm believes in and train them to be good at that. They're very big on they don't hire from specific degrees. You can be working with someone who had a degree in history, philosophy, arts, anything. Interesting. I never knew it was uh, 
so open-ended as long as someone was um, emotionally intelligent, could hold a conversation well into working teams. So it's more based on their characteristics. Yeah. How how much does um, ambition and passion really into that process? Like if you're interviewing someone and say, for example, everything else is a control measure mm-hmm. and one person is, for example, really analytical and very logical and super straightforward... Um, but they don't show any passion or ambition, where someone's still got the same technical capabilities, but they talk in quite a passionate, uh, enthusiastic way. They maybe express their ambition to progress further uh, within the team. What What's more important from the, the host perspective, from the interviewer? I think from a personal perspective, you always want to work with someone who's passionate because passion sort of will get you out of your bed in the morning and get you to work and get you through the tougher times and being passionate about something you're more open to learning about it you know and I think everyone will know know they've had subjects in school or university but that they just weren't passionate about and it became a drag so French for me uh, me and my Nat 4 certificate for French it just I wasn't passionate about <laughs> oh, it wee wee. oh it was a uh, it wasn't a passion project of mine and it really started to grate on me the wrong way and I just I completely checked out mentally so Mm. even just taking it beyond applying for jobs you've got to be passionate about something you actually want to do yeah 100% Um, that actually leads me on to one of my last questions for for this section and it's quite a broad question so feel free to take a second to think about it um do you think passion is a depleting resource as their attentions are increasingly captured by others achievements through things like social uh, social networks tiktok youtube instagram and if you need any clarification on that question just let me know Okay, so my understanding of that is that is passion sort of diminishing as you compare yourselves to others' achievements in the same field and sort of compare yourself? Is that, have I understood that right? Not quite. So not just in the fact that you're comparing to these ultra-successful people because that tends to be what's shown on YouTube and TikTok and Instagram. But just the fact that it's distracting you from your own life um, is ultimately how I look at it. It's like social media and these things, like a lot of like YouTube shorts and stuff, it's almost a sedation um, and that it provides you with that entertainment and kind of living vicariously through them. Um, so I think that people are less passionate these days than they were 30 years ago because they've got that kind of gratification from social media and from these other figures. But I'm just wondering if it's just me that's noticed it or what your thoughts are on that statement in general. Yeah, I think I've got it and I would agree to an extent. So I do think that with social media going from a shift of sharing to short form immediate gratification content, you are constantly being exposed to that cycle of new video gratification 
new video gratification, especially with stuff like TikTok where you literally swipe and it's a brand new topic, brand new video. Um, because you can spend hours, and I have done, I'm absolutely guilty of it, where you sit and you swipe through TikTok and all of a sudden, hour and a half, two hours has passed and you thought, well, what did I actually do with that time? And you sat on TikTok and mm. you watched some funny videos, but in reality you can't actually remember it. I've, funnily enough, deleted TikTok this morning. I was chatting with my girlfriend about it last night because obviously I'm studying for these exams and too often I'd find myself just defaulting to it. So... Yeah. realising that oh, this is actually not good for my studying, it's not good for me trying to to actually get on with life. So deleted it on the basis that I'm not going to go cold turkey on it, I'm just going to delete it until I'm done with my exam. And then I'll delete it when I have my next exam. So I do think it's it's one of these things where if you don't control it, then yeah, you can just sit in front of your phone and scroll through TikTok all day and lose a bit of passion for what you want to do because... If you're sitting there watching it, you're not doing it. And personally, I think you'll always get more fun and you'll always cultivate your passion by doing what you're passionate about rather than just sitting there watching someone doing it. That's um, Your wording there is what caught my attention. You said you'll always have more fun doing what your passion is, but I don't necessarily agree. I think because we're so engrossed in this technology um, and the people that make this technology have got it down to such a degree Mm -hmm. is that you'll always have more short-term fun on these apps, playing about in these things, watching these videos because they're built to Mm -hmm. do that. But that takes away from like that long-term fulfillment of actually achieving your goals. And that's the hardest step to overcome is to be able to know that that short-term like happiness and not fulfillment, but happiness and fun is always there. Mm-hmm. And being able to kind of put that aside for a second and say, no, like I'm actually going to achieve something that's going to fulfill me because it could happen. I'm not, not saying for you, but like for a lot of people, they could be sitting there for four or five or six or 10 years mm-hmm. going through that cycle of watching YouTube and TikTok every night. And then they'll get 10 years down the line. They'll, they'll realize that they've never done anything long term for themselves. And I just find that such a, a worrying thing to think about is that 40 years ago people would think oh I'll start a band and I'll be in it for the next five or ten years or as you said you want to be in finance for the next five years and then be in the motorsport industry for the next 20 or 30 and I think it was really this this instant gratification is actually permeating into other parts for lives where our just our view on life is so short term that people don't have that same passion that they used to and this has become less of a question, more of a monologue on my part. So I apologise for that, but it was just a thought that was going through my head and you seemed like the the right type of person to have a discussion about it with. I would definitely agree that going back, maybe fun wasn't the right word. Um, satisfaction, fulfilment, probably a better stand-in for it. You know, like I was saying earlier, in my opinion, you've got to have a long-term goal. And long-term means different things to different people. Long-term, for some people, can be 50 years. For other people, long-term in their life could be 5 to 10 years. But you've got to have an idea of where you want to be in that time so you can start making steps towards it now. And Mm. if you're going to have these things in your life that give you instant gratification, you can, but you have to do it in moderation and be disciplined with it. 
So I would try and set a timer for TikTok, but ultimately it would just fail because you just say, ignore the timer. <laughs> and you've got to be honest with yourself and say, it's all very well good telling people, yeah, I've got a timer on TikTok, but do you actually stick to it? And I could lie. No one you does. Know, no one I could does. lie and say, yeah, I've got a 40 minute timer and that I stick to that every day, but that's just a blatant lie. So the next step for me is, right, okay, just delete it because it's not going to, it's not going to benefit me and it's not part of so far my long-term goals like my long-term goals are to pass these exams and get to a place in my career where I can do that and be able to support my passions for motorsport and photography but TikTok doesn't fit into that not to say I can't enjoy it you know and sit and watch a few but there are certain points in your life where it's crunch time and this is one of them for me with these exams so you've got to prioritize what you bring into your life and what gives you satisfaction. Outside work and relationships, what what do you think gives you the most satisfaction on a day-to-day basis? What's like that that moment? It could be 10 minutes, it could be an hour. What's the moment where you sit to yourself and you think, fuck, I enjoy this? It's a difficult one. I think the thing that gives me most satisfaction out with relationships and career is probably sitting down of an evening and just before like I put the TV on or something and just kind of taking stock of what I've done that day mm. and where I am. Um, you know, being... I think it's, I suppose it's kind of difficult to see outside your career and relationships because they're such a big part of your life. You know, you sit down and think, mm-hmm. I'm really thankful and grateful for the relationships I have, not just my relationship with my girlfriend, but with friends and where they are and having such a good network and sitting down thinking, yeah, this is, this is a good life, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a hard question, just something I, I thought of off the top of my head mm-hmm. um, but it's for you it's that reflection of the day and kind of taking stock of what's happened yeah reflection of the day and thinking about the future and sort of thinking you know whether that be the future and my wildest dreams sitting on a 170 metre super yacht in a jacuzzi or whether it's the future thinking you know I hope one day I can actually be close to motorsport you know Mm. Yeah, I mean, dreams do vary in size and in immensity yeah. as well. Um, if I was to give you, say, for example, ten million just now, and I was like, "Steeps, you cannot invest oh. any of this. You can't be <laughs> you, Steeps. You because I knew I knew that you would as well. If I gave you ten million now, you'd probably put nine million in very fucking good investments." But I'm like, Steeps, you need to be as financially irresponsible as possible with 10 right. million. Tomorrow, what are you doing with it? Right. I need to be as... So I basically, I need to spend it all. You need to fuck that 10 million in a week. And these, these can be things that you can use for life. You can buy fucking cars and yachts and things that would be technically classified investments, but you need to have a lot of fun and you can't be thinking... What will these be worth right. in the future? You just need to be going on pure enjoyment. Okay. Pure enjoyment. Uh, I would buy an Audi R8 immediately off the bat. 
Um, I would... What next? If I was wanting to just get rid of it. I, I, apart from that, Audi R8, plenty of holidays. And then... Mm. Do you know, I would actually, if I had 10 million and I had to spend it, I would actually love to sponsor a small racing team. I think that would, I okay. think that would be unreal because you're then immediately, you're in the story so you, and you're, you're sponsoring okay. the scene. You'd, ra- you'd run around with the, the cap on some F2 league. You're running around fucking supporting them, sponsoring them, making it happen, really just being fucking right there in the thick of it. I think that would be a lot of fun. I mean, you'd then, you'd be straight into that world of sponsoring teams and being in the paddock with the drivers and you'd have an intimate knowledge of it. And also, 10 millions are kind of a drop in the water when you get into the big racing leagues, so it'd be a great way to just see it gone in an afternoon, you know? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely fuck all in comparison oh, to yeah. them, but um, probably their their catering costs. <laughs> you know, they spend ten million on burger patties. <laughs> absolutely. Just on the topic of like F one and F two, I don't know if I mentioned this in a past uh, pod as well, but there's actually a race yes. driver out there called Liam Lawson yes. as well. Yeah, I've seen that, and I've, I've said it a few ha- times. It's quite cool. <laughs> It's, do you know what I mean? It's heartbreaking stuff getting to fucking 23 years old and then finding someone that's four years your prior and much more famous, <laughs> much more successful. <laughs> you're just looking back like you, cunt. You're four years younger. So I think that might be the entire ethos of this podcast is to just fucking um, beat other Liam Lawson on the, the Google search rankings and maybe, do you know what, give it two or three years' time when uh, this, that as a cold brew drink and as a brand and as a lifestyle has blown up. Maybe maybe I'll beat him. We'll get him on the podcast as Unreal. well. And we'll have a good laugh about being called Liam Lawson. That would be a good guest. That would be a really good guest. That would be a fucking epic guest, honestly, mate. <laughs> um, I have two last questions for you. And I think we will call it off there. Um, before doing hopefully a two and a half three hour podcast in person at some point in the future as a catch up so my second to last question um, as we've finished the other other podcast we talk about character and self development somewhat so my first question for you is what characteristic do you admire most about other people good question Okay, I'll give I'll give two differing ones. Um the first one is in my mum and dad, their characteristics of no matter the situation, to keep a level head and take stock. They have that ability, which I think they've they've honed it over the years, but it's amazing that anything can happen and they basically sit down and say, Right, okay, what's happened? let's take stock, let's talk it through and figure it out. And I think that's something that I try and bring into my life because if you can't do that, if something happens and you're sort of a slave to your immediate outburst, it's not helpful. You've got to be able to think critically about what's happened. But on the flip side of that, something that I admire, I think you're the person that I've seen it the most in is the ability to take risks. Um, 
there are people in my life that have taken risks. Um, but at our age, I think it's you because you've gone out and you started more businesses than most people ever probably work for in their lives. Um, and <laughs> don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, mate, but I appreciate no, it. No, it's, it's taking risks and it's, it's seeing what you're about. Um, funnily enough, the Dove Hill Tops, I've still got all of them and they regularly make it into my rotation. <laughs> um, but no, it's taking risks in the fact you can throw a, you know, a bag on your back and suddenly you're in Thailand and then you're in Australia and I actually don't know where you're going to end up next. It's, it's a quality I think people should have is the ability to take risks, but I do recognise that people take risks in different ways. So for you, taking the risk was literally going to a different country and carving out a life. For other people, taking the risks might be starting a new career or moving to an area out with their support network. But I think that ability of taking risk is something that I admire in people. And when I see it, there's always part of me that thinks, do you know, I wish I could take risks like that. Mm. So the first one you said is that pose and that calmness mm. under fire that you've grown up mm. with amongst your mum and dad. And the second one, I'm absolutely humbled and I appreciate very much. Um, I very much take pride in that as well. Um, I love... I love taking risks. They're quite paradoxical. Yeah. And from what you've just mentioned there, um, saying that you wish perhaps you could take risks more, what percentage would you say you embody the first one in comparison to the second one? I think I embody the first one probably 80% in risk-taking, the 20%, but the level of risk-taking is probably different. So... The risks would be, for instance, um, probably going out and buying a flat because that's a big risk that I actually have no money at the end of the month. It's uh, <laughs> it's also the situation I find myself in now is every month is a budgeting month and uh, figuring out what you actually got at the end mm. of the month. But it's a risk and I saw the reward and thought, yeah, I'd, I'd like to do that. Um, other risks... Just trying to put yourself first is a risk for me because I like to be a people pleaser and I like to, to try and get outcomes that please other people. So for me, put myself first is a risk because there's the risk that you, you don't please people. But that's something that personally I'm working on is trying to. To make sure that it's okay for me to say yeah, you can, you can do what you want to do. You know. Mm. Do you think, I I think just on that that putting your thing first I think if everything comes from a place of honesty and integrity then how you put other people first or how you put yourself first it doesn't really matter if you're just honest about your intentions and why you're doing mm -hmm. things um, then people can either respect it or they won't like yeah. it um, and the people the people that don't like it um, will just have to fuck off and no other words um, <laughs> I think I think it's very it's very easy to get rid of the wrong people when you entirely are yourself. Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned, something you're working on is um, being a little bit more selfish because you need to be because you always put other people first. And I don't know how you think about yourself, but that's probably a truer version of your of yourself. If you're trying to be more like that, that's probably a more honest version of Steve's. Mm -hmm. It's definitely interesting. So I think it's 
if it's something if it's something you're working on you've wanted to work on um and it sounds as if it's a more complete version mm-hmm. of you um and certainly you can see the benefit in in that as well and that doesn't mean that you'll be any less benevolent of a human being mm-hmm. it just means you'll be a more honest individual and you won't be walked over by other people yeah i think that's ultimately it is that you've got to be honest with yourself and if you look at yourself honestly and say did you enjoy going through all that stress to try and make sure that someone had what they needed but you've actually thought about it and you were really stressed out about it and it put more detriment towards you is that actually what made you happy and the answer is usually no and will that person be okay without you going through all that yeah did that person ask for it they probably didn't ask it in the first place you know so mm. you're right you've got to be a little bit selfish with yourself to sort of understand what you want and what you need to do yeah 100% and I think just going back to your point about risk taking um, you were talking about how you bought a flat and I can't remember if you'd bought your car or you're renting just mm-hmm. now it's on finance yeah. no it's, it's bought um, it's yeah. bought so you bought a car you bought a house paying a mortgage I think for me so what I'm doing might be scary or terrifying to you but what you've done is scary or terrifying to me so I think risks create themselves and are framed differently mm-hmm. in different people's minds and in my mind, doing this and traveling the world and going to different places and starting businesses, that's less of a risk to me, in my mind, than buying a house and buying a car. But I'm assuming you see that from a different way and that fucking selling all your possessions and dropping a backpack on and traveling the world is way more of a risk than what you've done. Am I right in saying that? I think you're right. And in the spirit of transparency, which I've picked up as one of the themes of this pod, uh, the car was a sort of split one, largely paid for by parents as a gift, and then I put money towards it as well, just in the full spirit of transparency, so people aren't listening, thinking, "What's you know what's going on?" Um, <laughs> How is this man so financially <laughs> responsible at such a young age? What the fuck is going because on? Because he comes from a very privileged place, and I'd be the first one to recognise that. Um, it's it's interesting people's views of risks. And you're right, people do have different views of risks and what they, they want to do. For you, put me putting down roots in Glasgow and committing to a, mm. a, a lengthy stint in Glasgow is a risk, you know, because I know for I know even knowing you at the start of uni, that would, is not something you'd do. You, you're just not that person. And that's interesting. It's good to have different people guy. in your life that are like that, you know? Yeah. Entirely, and I think one thing about our relationship is we are, in no other terms, very different people in how we approach things, but there's always been, at least on my side, a very, very high level of respect and admiration and that I respect and admire you a lot. Um, and it's, it's weird how we can have such different kind of out, outlooks on things, but kind of have that commonality that makes us so congruent as friends and and human beings um and i'm just going to frame my last question in that way there's a lot of things that um i admire about you um but i want to i want to know 
what do you reckon other people admire about you most? And not me, just other people in your life. What do they think they appreciate or notice most about you? And this this is the time where you get to do a wee bit of a self brag about your best your best qualities. But I'm curious to see how you think about that and what you think your your most prominent one would be. You're saying self brag, but I hate hate these kinds of like tell us about yourself, you know, <laughs> and you're like, oh, I hate it. It makes my skin crawl. Um, but in, it's your it's your pod I'll ask you your questions um, <laughs> oh. I try my best to be as dependable as I can for people um, and I'd like to think that's something they admire you would need to do some kind of survey of my family and friends to figure out what they actually uh, admire about me if anything I think the thing I try and be is a constant for people. So simple stuff like saying you're going to turn up on time and turning up on time or turning up early, trying to be that dependable person that people know what they're going to get and there's no real surprises with it and trying to be a kind of pillar for people uh, that are in my close close circle and there'll be people that probably listen to that that know me vaguely thinking that's absolute bollocks but for people that are in sort of my <laughs> my uh, my close circle um i try and be that and you know oh it's a difficult question and i can feel myself rambling no no mate i you've you've said it um and in, in my words, I would say I've always looked at you as a, a character of integrity and a principled person as well. And I think that comes through in being there on time and being dependable and doing what you say you do. Like, if you say you're going to do something, you always do it. If you agree to something, you'll do it. And that comes from a place of integrity. There's never any lies or deceit or anything, so... Um, I did really enjoy making you squirm there. Um, <laughs> a, a wee bit of self-love, mate. But <laughs> I think that's something I'm going to have to introduce more often to the later podcast episodes is um, making people squirm about uh, appreciating themselves in somewhat of a way. Because I think that's the hardest to do. Oh, it's difficult. It? It's difficult to look at yourself in the mirror and say what makes you a good person. And you've got to then sit and justify yeah. to yourself what makes you a good person. You're always your own worst critic. Oh, yeah. Like always, it's it's just a a fact of being human. Is you're not gonna look at yourself and view yourself. If if you could take yourself and duplicate yourself, you would look at that duplicated version of yourself and think, oh, that's an amazing person. They get these qualities and that, and they're a good person. But you're never able to do that. Just looking at yourself, it's a a really interesting way to to think about it. Um. But yeah, mate, that's the. Uh, the structure of the normal podcast finished but I want to keep you on for one one last sure. thing so the the pod is very much a working progress and the idea right now is to get to 10 episodes by experimenting with different structures mm-hmm. and I'm sure you heard with Dylan it was very structured and then with my brother it was complete nonsense yeah. where we talked about pretty much everything and anything um 
I feel as if this one has been a bit of a mixture of both. We've had some structure, but we've also had some interesting caveats as well. Uh, my One of my ideas for the future of the podcast is that we get interesting figures from specific niche areas. Mm-hmm. And what we do is a mixture between a podcast and like a mini doc. So say, for example, there's someone that is a snowboarding instructor. What we'll do is we'll record a podcast with them, but we'll also go to that specific person's area of work and we'll film that mini documentary and then integrate that into the podcast. So you have a podcast that works by itself on Spotify, but on YouTube, you'll have that longer term with the camera angles of the the people in a room talking in a normal podcast setting, but it also integrates that documentary as well. Because I've just I've not seen that done in a podcast format before, so um, it's just something that I've fucking put in a ball of paper mache, threw at the wall, and I'm curious to hear people's thoughts. And if anyone's listening, fucking drop me a message with your thoughts as well. But um, first impressions, good and bad. Tell me. I like the idea of bringing an extra element to it because it's difficult when you're listening to stuff you think I wonder what that looks like or I wonder what they look like um, so bringing in the, the visual element definitely I like the idea of it being again that kind of accompaniment to it you can make it dead artsy and make it essentially I don't know like an hour and a half of not quite b-roll but you know just film them doing their daily lives like if it was a snowboard instructor then teaching a group or doing snowboard tricks and just have it as a an accompanying thing or if you're wanting to to make it really focused and have it film the interview that's also good but i do support the adding video into it yeah sick well thank you if you've got any any further thoughts uh for the podcast or anything like that man um we will we'll talk to about it after but i think that's us for now. Is there any last things that you'd like to, to say to an audience? I think for right now, um, until episode 10 is released, uh, I won't be telling anyone about this. It'll just be the yeah. 10 guests. They'll be made aware that this podcast exists. So by the time we get to episode 10, um, we'll be showing our mutual friends. Steg might be listening to this in maybe about two months' time. So is there anything you want to say to the world or to your friends or anything like that? Um. I love you all. <laughs> uh, that's really it. I mean, the people that are listening hope they continue to support the podcast and know that this just is exactly a, a Liam Lawson thing. And, you know, there's people there that could have 100% <laughs> predicted that you'd have a podcast. And Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a fucking stereotype for me, isn't it? I'm it fucking is, but I mean, leaning into it. I don't know if it's stereotype or it's just the natural progression. I think it's a st- calling it a stereotype yeah, might be a bit harsh. It's, it's just the natural progression that you would have a podcast. It's my ca- character arc. <laughs> exactly. You're at that point in your character arc in the story. <laughs> You've gone through all the development and you're at the, the spreading knowledge bit. No, I'd say um, <laughs> to everyone that listens, just support it and uh, yeah, hope they got something out of it. And thank you very much for, for having me on. I'm, I'm really humbled and grateful that you would choose me to to be on the podcast and think that i have something of value to add uh from my point that very selfishly this has just been a great catch-up and a great chat so even if no more to listen and hate it for me i've got something out of it awesome mate i'm glad to hear it and i very much appreciate you coming on um there we are we'll finish right there